open striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. Let's, let's stand and sing.
Well, there's many here this morning. It's good to have you here. There are people uh, watching online. There are quite a few away for various reasons, and uh, some of those like to make sure they don't miss out and uh, catch up by watching uh, the, the messages they've missed. So whatever category you're in this morning, I'm praying that it will be of help to you as we look at God's Word here in 2 Kings chapter 4. Now, just to start thinking um, on the topic, I wonder if you've been on a roller coaster. I wonder if you've been on a roller coaster. Well, perhaps some of you love roller coasters. I'm not in that category. Now, I've got better things to do with my money than spend it on a roller coaster. My sort of roller coaster was the one I went on when my girls were toddlers, which you get to about 10 feet high, and that's as high as they get. That's my sort of roller coaster. Well, the thing about roller coasters and the thrill of roller coasters, if you're into them, is of course the the ups and downs, sometimes tremendous changes of height that leave your stomach in the air. Well, the next part of uh, Elisha's life as we're going through it uh, reminds me of a roller coaster. Ups and downs, uh, twists and turns. Of course, it didn't all occur at once. It's compacted for us as we read these chapters. But it reads like that, some extremes of experience. And uh, life can feel like that, can't it? Ups and downs, sharp ups, uh, sharp downs. I told my wife about the title of this evening, The the Roller Coaster of Life, and she just laughed. The the morning had been like that. In many ways, sometimes our lives are like that. Lots of ups and downs. In major ways, our lives can be like that. And the life of a believer can be like that too. Highs and lows, inevitable. And uh, that's probably been your experience, probably is the experience Maybe you feel as though you're on part of that sort of up and down pattern. Well, we don't just here have a, a, a roller coaster of events in what we're looking at this morning. We also have God involved. Uh, specifically through his servant, uh, Elisha here, who eight times in this passage is called the man of God. God involved in this roller coaster of events. And the man of God here pointing to the man of God, pointing forward to Christ. And so as we look at what we're looking at this morning, um, we'll notice ups and downs tremendously. But we'll also learn things about God and we'll also see some things about God in connection with ups and downs. So it's not just the roller coaster of life or life on a roller coaster. It is faith on a roller coaster as well as life on a roller coaster. Now we're going to try and uh, plot what happens here a little bit in the graph in the background. I thought it was a good idea, and when I sort of brought it together this morning, I, I'm not totally sure whether it was a good idea. I think it will help some, and others might feel it was all a bit jumbly, too much on the screen. But um, before we, we get too much into the subject, we're going to be thinking about, um, about the woman involved. 
And as we think about this woman, really we start a good way up. We start half. I think I probably should have put it slightly higher, but once you've done these drawers, you can't really go back on them very easily. So we're starting at a pretty good point in terms of um, how things are. Uh, we have this woman. She's from Shunem. That's uh, 15 miles southwest of... So it's for you, is it that way? Southwest of Galilee. And... Um, this, this woman, um, she is in a happy position and she is in a happy disposition. A happy position and a happy disposition. And we've got a lot we can learn from this woman who we read about in these verses. Um, she has wealth, but she wants to use it well. She's a, a lady of ideas and initiative and plans. Um, She's a lady who's very supportive of God's work and God's word. And that's shown in her attitude to the prophet Elisha. Now, she must have lived on the equivalent of a main road, because, uh, or a throughway, because Elisha comes nearby to her house and they are keen, her and her wife, for uh, Elisha to have something to eat. They're quite keen for him. They're eager for him to have food there. And he must have been made very welcome because it became a frequent pattern for him when he was nearby to come to their house. And uh, she is keen to do what she can to support this man of God, Elisha. And she has this wonderful idea of building an extension, really, an upstairs room, a study bedroom for the prophet so that he can stay and rest and be encouraged as he goes on his journey. You read about it in verse 8 to 10. One day Elisha went on to Shunem where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat some food. And she said to her husband, Behold, now I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair and a lamp, so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. Well, it encourages us, doesn't it, to use our money and our resources well and generally, and generously, to take initiative as we do so, to support the, the work of the Lord, to support the workers of the Lord. And as I was thinking of this, it reminded me of somebody, many of you know, Ron Bishop, who was a faithful deacon here for many years, uh, passed away just a few years ago. And I remember him telling me at one point in his life, he wondered if he was going to be a preacher. And uh, he he thought a lot about it and he prayed about it. um, And he came to the conclusion in the end that that wasn't what God wanted him to do, to be a preacher, but that instead he should do all that he could to support those who are. And if you know anything about him, you realise he worked that out with some great enthusiasm and energy through his life, supporting with a big-hearted way, those who were directly involved with preaching the word. He was like Gaius in the New Testament, we read of him in 3 John, who obviously hosted and encouraged those who were taking the word around to others. Well, it doesn't have to be just ministers, some of us are looked after very well, but there are many others who are involved in different ways, paid or unpaid, in the work of the Lord. And it is good 
where we do what we can to encourage such people, to encourage them in the work of the church, the work of the Lord, the work of the gospel, in reaching out, when we use our initiative and our resources to, to, to give them a step up and to help them on their way, because we are so supportive of them and the Lord who they serve and the Lord who they teach. So we start with this woman then, and we start... Midway up. This is a good note, isn't it? It's a lovely picture. She's a lovely example to us. And then, as we carry on, things get, uh, things get even better. We go up here. And this woman experiences, she experiences firstly this, the excessive kindness of God. The excessive kindness of God. We're in verses 11 to um, 17 here. God is mindful of her heart and efforts. Encouragement for those committed to support the work of the gospel in different ways, the Lord notices. Elisha stays there and um, Gehazi is with him. I don't quite know where Gehazi is, whether he's on the floor in the upper room or whether he stays elsewhere, but he's on the scene as well. And Elisha thinks about all the trouble that this woman has gone to and goes to to support him in his work. And he's deeply grateful. He's not arrogant about it. He doesn't assume that such things should happen. He's very moved by what she's done. And he wants her to be blessed and happy. And through Gehazi, he asks the the lady, the Shunammite lady, what uh, he would like uh, her to, 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 to do what he'd like her to do for her. He has connections after all. He knows people in high places. Is there something she needs? Does she need a case raised? He's keen to help and bless this lady. Well, this lady of faith is very content. She's happy in her neighbourhood. She has all she needs. We read about it in 11 to 13. One day he came there and he turned into the chamber and rested there and he said to Gehazi his servant, call this Shunammite. When he had called her, she stood before him and he said to her, say now to her, see you have taken all this trouble for us, what is it to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to a king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. In other words, I'm happy, I'm satisfied. I don't need anything. I've got all that I need. I've got more than enough. She's content. But Elisha is not, is not so content. He really does want her to have something. He really does want to bless her. He really does want her to have a joy, some encouragement for her faithful experience. And so Gehazi notices and comes up with the idea. She has no son. And uh, time has advanced for her and her husband. And uh, Elisha calls the woman and breaks some delightful news for her in verse 16. He said, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. She can hardly believe it. Don't tease me. It's as if she's saying, don't tease me. But sure enough, a year later, there's a little boy cuddled in her arms. 
we're up high, aren't we? This is lovely things to read about. She had more than she expected. She experienced the excessive kindness of God. And don't you find that in many ways you experience the excessive kindness of God? In natural ways, I think first. You look around your life and what you experience. And we think of the, the Bible verse that says God gives us richly all things to enjoy. There are many enjoyable things. Beyond what you expected. Well, you wanted a car. And any old reliable one will do. But you get handed to you at knockdown price something that's a much better model than you ever expected. Excessive kindness of God. You hope in to um, economically get the basics in your weekly shop from Lidl's and you bring it home and somebody else has brought you a lovely big jam sponge. Excessive kindness of God. One afternoon you've got a lot to do, you feel a bit overwhelmed with all that's on your list and it seems to go so well so that you get a lot of tomorrow's jobs done today. The excessive kindness of God. Sometimes the Lord does more than we ask or even think. It's not always like that, but perhaps it's more often like that than our ungrateful hearts seem to realise. And spiritually, it is certainly true for those who know Jesus as their Saviour. It is something that uh, is a clear note in the letter to the Ephesians in the New Testament where so many blessings are passed on uh, as things which we experience if we're believers. We are accepted by God, we are welcomed by God, we are adopted, we have uh, forgiveness, we have redemption, we have the Holy Spirit, we have a future. And he says in describing this in verse 7 of chapter 1, in him through Christ we have redemption through his blood, The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he's lavished upon us. It's an overflow of blessings. He says so in the next chapter, verse 7 again, chapter 2, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 3 he's on a similar note. He talks about the gospel which he preaches. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The excessive kindness of God to those who are Christians. This is true for you if you're a believer. Blessing upon blessing, piled much more than you ever deserve. It's as if the apostle just says, I can't believe it, God has been so kind to me. The excessive kindness of God. But then in our account, we take a a massive dip. We take a massive dip. And we come to a a passage which we probably struggle to read. Um, It's one I almost almost don't like reading. I I shudder. Uh, Don't you find it a disturbing account that you want to jump over? And we really come on then in, in the middle of our message this morning to the puzzling ways of God. She experiences the puzzling ways of God or, or we could say the painful providences 
of God, the, the distressing providences of God. Well, the child gets a little older, and the boy is out with the, his father, uh, father out to work with the reapers, and uh, he's taken ill while he's out there one day, and he's brought to his mother, and within a few hours he has died in her arms. leaving uh, the child in the home upstairs in the special area for the man of God. This uh, lady of faith uh, mounts a donkey and she heads for Elisha. She doesn't explain what's happening to her husband. She goes the 15 or 20 miles at uh, top speed or as top speed as a donkey will take you in order to get to Elisha on Mount Carmel. When she gets there, she doesn't do any explaining to Gehazi, Elisha's servant, as he greets her. Elisha himself is is puzzled. He knows that she's deeply distressed, but he doesn't know why. A reminder that even those who know God in his word quite well are often baffled, confused, don't understand exactly what he is doing in his purposes. She gets her way through to Elisha and she pours out her heart to him. We get a snippet of it in verse 28. Then she said, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? As she relays the news of what has happened to her son and her perplexity and confusion and dashed hopes through all that she has gone through. How could this happen? The the, the roller coaster has just reached rock bottom and all within the case of a few hours. Her boy was there at breakfast and now he's... He's gone by afternoon and she's in sheer turmoil. It is what, like Job said, uh, the man who suffered so much in the Bible, the thing that I greatly feared has come upon me. And perhaps the, the worst experience that a mother could go through, and it's so puzzling, isn't it? The lad seems such a wonderful gift, an unasked for gift even. You have bad things happening to good people, to faithful people, to supportive people, to generous people. And the events, they seem mean and they seem cruel and they seem senseless and they seem pointless. And uh, so does life sometimes, doesn't it, in this fallen world. Some things are so hard and so painful and, and so out of the blue and and so confusing, and so against the grain of our expectations, and they seem so against our hopes and what we thought was going to be good. And sometimes that thing that seems so wonderful, such a provision, and it all seems to come crashing down around us, and our dreams are gone. So, you see the roller coaster of her experience... And I find two comments in, in this account really particularly helpful as you think of it going down so sharply. I, I did mention them at, 
the graveside of uh, dear Amber May when we had the funeral earlier in the month when I just made a few comments about this passage. Uh, And one is this phrase, bitter to stress, verse 27. So Elisha acknowledges and knows that she is in bitter distress. It's not a nice phrase, is it? But it does reflect the experience that she's going through. The Bible does acknowledge the depth of the experiences we go through in this fallen world. And some are very hard to swallow. They are bitter. And some are very, very troubling. Distress. She's in bitter distress. It leaves a bad taste. It's yuck. I don't like it. I don't want to be in it. I don't want to go through it. It's too troubling. She's in bitter distress. The Bible doesn't skate lightly over people's troubles and sadnesses. Even when the supportive people, faithful people, people of initiative, it acknowledges that they do experience bitter distress. But there's another phrase that the lady says, which I find really helpful as well. And she says this both to her husband and to Gehazi. She says it in verse 23 and verse 26. She says, all is well. All is well. It's puzzling, isn't it? All is well. And some writers think that she's just sort of palming them off, really. She's saying, I don't want to speak to, I don't want to tell you about my husband and I don't want to tell you Gehazi. You know, I'm making a beeline for Elisha and I'm just not going to get talking. Well, I I think there's more to it than that. She is clearly a a lady of faith, a lady of contentment, that's been clear already. The fact that she's going to Elisha, the man of God with her deep trouble, shows faith. Her faith shows later on as well. This is a lady of contentment and faith. And, And I think in saying all as well, she is reflecting something of her trust and peace in God, even even in the immense difficulties. An awareness that the Lord is in overall control. An awareness that it's going to end up somewhere different from where it feels it is now. Deep distress. All is well. Almost it seems immissible chemistry, you know, when two, 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 uh, two, um, two, chemis- two chemicals don't mix together, you know, they separate. It feels like that, they're not going to... But here they are in this account, deep distress, all is well. And as I was thinking about this event this week, um, it just reminded me of uh, when we lost uh, twins uh, prematurely at 19 weeks and um, the phone call at work and the the dash to the hospital. Think of... uh, the uncertainty of what was happening and the confusion and the pain and the tears. So, deep distress. But at the same time, in God's kindness, I remember on that journey from my office in Tunbridge to the hospital at Pembury, having heard something of the news of what was going, a sense of peace, that God was in control, that God could be trusted that was with him, deep distress, and yet a sense of all is well. And some of you, over the years, 
You've had much deeper troughs than me that uh, grief for us didn't remain as painful and as long as it has done for others. But I know that others over the years have experienced these deep troughs and deep distress, but they've also known, even through that, a sense of peace, an awareness of God's wisdom, an awareness of God's sovereignty, so that in part they've been able to say, it is with God, it is well, it's part of an overall plan, even though it is a bitter distress. So she experiences the puzzling ways of God, the painful providences of God. Well, you'll be glad we don't stay down in the, in the trough. Um, she's tempted to turn off or, or stay tuned in. There's a tremendous upturn. We have a tremendous upturn as we come to the end of this account. So we go back up there in our roller coaster. And she experiences, lastly, uh, the resurrecting power of God. The resurrecting power of God. We're now from verse 29 to 37. So Elisha, he sends Gehazi ahead and he's on a mission. There's no time to stop and talk to others. And he's equipped with um, the prophetic staff uh, in order to go to the scene. Um, mums can be very insistent, can't they? And uh, she, she is not content with just Gehazi going ahead with the staff. She doesn't want anything except Elisha himself to go along with her. So she won't head back without him. Well, Gehazi has no joy with the staff. It's as if this needs something more than just ordinary sort of prophetic powers. This is something particularly deep and needs the presence of a man of God in a special way. Makes us think forward. Elisha arrives. He heads up to the dead child. Elisha prays. This is... uh, something that's beyond his power. It needs the amazing work of God to be involved in this situation. And then the, the actions seem so strange to us, don't they? We, we've heard of mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, but, but this is different and it feels a bit weird and wacky to us as we read it now. As Elisha's hands and eyes and mouth are placed on the child's perhaps showing it needed maximum identification with the child and his condition. Makes you think later of God coming in the flesh as a man, as we've sung, and going through death. And then there's some warmth. Elisha has a a walkabout, and then there's a repeat of his actions, and then then the scene becomes wonderful as... uh, As one writer, Dal Ralph Davis, puts it, a a sneeze never sounded so healthy. A sneeze never sounded so healthy. And in fact, you have seven of them, signs of life. And the child's eyes are open. And the mum is called up to collect the child. And she falls in gratefulness at the feet of Elisha, not forgetting the kindness of God before heading out of the house. There's a wonderful story, account. I don't always like the word story because we tend to think of fairy tales. It's a wonderful account 
the resurrecting power of God. A, a hugely rare miracle. It has some counterparts. In fact, we read of one last week, partly with a view to this week. We read in Luke chapter 7. In fact, uh, it took place just the other side of the hillside from this. Nain, north, actually, as it happens, of this hill. And uh, Shunem, south of this hill, very close, just a few miles apart, this happened. In Luke 7, where in an example of Jesus' compassion that we saw about last week as there is a funeral procession and he touches the coffin and the sun so wonderfully, exceptionally, comes to life. And Jesus demonstrates his power over death. The biggest and the worst enemy of a broken world is death and Jesus shows power over it, resurrecting power. And Jesus himself, Easter Sunday, leaves the shackles of death behind as he is raised by the power of God in resurrection. Last week's sermon was called, Where Debt Your Sting. This week really comes to the original from that phrase, Where Death Is Your Sting. That's the case in this account as it is overturned and reversed by the resurrecting power of God. And so there's a remarkable upturn. And it heartens us and it makes us think of Jesus who said in the scene of a very sad scene in John 11, these wonderful, triumphant words. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So we don't see resurrection in this way within this life. But for believers, life goes on with Christ in glory after death because of the resurrecting power of God. Awaiting a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth. Everlasting life given to believers. That the roller coaster there ends up Wonderfully high. And that is true for those who have faith in Jesus. For those who have died in faith, they have ended up wonderfully high because of the resurrecting power of God. For those who do die in faith, they end up wonderfully high because of the resurrecting power of the Lord Jesus Christ. For us, when we die, if we're believers our experience will end up wonderfully high, taken to be with the Lord forever, free from this broken world because of the resurrection power of Jesus. And with roller coasters, when you go up high, as I say, my experience with roller coasters is very limited, but from observation, seeing others, when you go up very, very high, you think, yeah, I know what's coming. But not, not this time. That's not the way it works with God's resurrecting power in final glory, 
forever. I spoke to some of those at First Tuesday, the group, the lunchtime group, late earlier in the week, and uh, the verse I mentioned to them reminds us of our certain future, 1 Peter 1, verse 3, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So, this woman experiences the excessive kindness of God, the puzzling ways of God, and then the resurrecting power of God. And just before we have our our final song, which is a very pertinent one, I'm just going to have a little pause, uh, maybe one of those three points, maybe aspects of that graph. Experiences of this account are particularly helpful for you to reflect on, to think about, to pray about. So let's uh, leave a minute before we have our final song. Well, we'll move to our our final uh, song, Um, a song of trust in the the great ups and downs of life. And some of you will know, you can put the first verse up, if if you would, Dave, thank you, when peace like a river. And some of you know the the way in which this was uh, penned. It's written by Horatio Spafford. And um, he and his wife lost their four daughters through a a boat collision on the Atlantic and uh, when travelling back across the Atlantic at a a later time, something quite soon afterwards, um, in the very area that this happened, um, he penned this hymn and it speaks of things being well, which might seem so strange but I think reflects a sense and awareness of God's sovereignty, God's control, even over the distresses of life. And perhaps as well reflects a sense of hope for those who are safe in Christ, that all is well for them. So a remarkable situation that this was written and perhaps will encourage us in a settled faith in God as we sing it through. When peace like a river attendeth my way.
experience so many wonderful gifts in this life beyond what we deserve, beyond what we expect. We thank you for them and we pray to recognise them and be grateful. But in the life pathway of all of us, and very obviously for some of us, there are great puzzles, great pains, great heartaches, deep distress. And we pray for uh, a faith and a contentment which acknowledges your sovereignty, wisdom and love through those difficult times and deep scenes. And Lord, we pray in such difficulties and after such difficulties to be able to reflect something of that hymn and to be able to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. We thank you for the tremendous consolation of the resurrecting power of God shown in these events and in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And we thank you that at the end of the day, death does not have the victory. That there is an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled and which does not fade away. And we pray to be heartened and encouraged as we think of what we have in Christ if we are believers. And this we pray in his name. Amen.